Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Water for Raymond. Poor old Raymond. Raymond obviously knows I have a lover and allows me to. Daniel allows me nothing. Treats me like a slave. When he lets me go, he knows I'm not free even then. What do you teach, Daniel? Philosophy? Psychology? should have been killed, and you deserve it. You're quite right. I was a silly bitch. I must pull myself together. Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. It must be five episodes from the last Kiss, Mary Kill we did. It must be. I can't believe we've gotten this far in only three seasons, <laughs> in only <laughs> several years' time, um, but it's exciting. Yeah. One more, we might even get to 69 before the end of the year, and then what do we do? Podcast is over. <laughs> that just ends. We need a new game for next for next time through the decade. I was thinking about that. I mean, part of me is like, I could totally do Kiss, Mary Kill, just restart. And then part of me is like, maybe, maybe we could find a new game. Yeah. Year-based game. If someone has a suggestion, reach out. Something you want to hear us do that's that's organized by year, let let us know. Yeah. My problem is I don't think I can make it through the decade again trying to find kills that we haven't covered on the show already because so many of the bad movies that I've seen for each of these years are, are I've only seen them because we've done them on this show. Too much slaughter for Bart. Too much bootleg bond. That's not a kiss Mary Kill. <laughs> That one's still good. That one's never ending. That's why I chose it. <laughs> but I mean, a lot of the worst movies are bootleg bonds. Oh, sure. And well, there, you know, there's a ton of Elvis movies we've never done. Yeah. <laughs> and each time I'm like, I could probably choose an Elvis movie, but let me let me uh, branch out. Yeah, I can probably safely choose any Elvis movie that I haven't seen as one of my kill picks. <laughs> They're not all kills. They're not all kills, but a lot of them are. But anyway, we're on 1968 now, and it's a it's a good year. Great year. It feels very modern because there are a whole lot of movies that I really love, like are all-time favorites, but there are also a whole bunch of movies that, that I don't like. Like it's sort of like movies now where I've got everything sort of divides into two camps. Like, you know, these are these are the good ones, these are the bad ones. Sort of before 1968, even even the bad 60s movies, I, I kind of had some appreciation for but movies got really bad in in 1968 so i guess that that sort of comes with a uh, a modern movie watching experience as you really uh can can s- start to separate the wheat from the chaff 
Well, we'll we'll see. I think some of the bad ones. I agree with you. The the bad ones are terrible, but they're they're also doing interesting. They're like they're they're aiming really high. Some of them. <laughs> you mean like Shalico? Yeah. No, I'm thinking about like you know I'm thinking about Candy actually. Yeah, Candy, one of the worst, but also really memorable. And also one of the ones that that I, the one that I chose that we'll get to later, I think is yeah. has is is aiming real high but doesn't doesn't quite make it. <laughs> Not by a long shot. But conceptually interesting. Mm. Yeah, we'll get to it. I've got a lot to say about that movie, but we'll get to it. Uh the top movie of the year was Funny Girl, which is I think that's interesting because you think about how Musicals were were dead by the end of the 60s, but they were still hanging on. I mean, I think uh, probably Sound of Music gave them a new lease on life a little bit. And, you know, so like Julie Andrews and and Barbara Streisand continued to make some some musicals that people actually wanted to see. Probably all Barbara Streisand, because she has a, you know, she brought that modern sensibility that you're talking about, I think. I guess she made Hello, Dolly in, in 69, and that's sort of the... The last of the classic musicals. On a clear day in 70. Uh, yeah, but anyway, it's the end. <laughs> it's the end of musicals, but but yet in 1968, the top moneymaker was a musical biopic of Fanny Bryce starring Barbara Streisand. Uh, number two was 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is a favorite of ours. Also a musical. Yeah. Uh, three, The Odd Couple. I haven't Four seen was- that. It's really good. It, uh, I mean, I was a big fan of the TV show before I ever saw the movie, so it always seemed a little bit strange to me, but it is good. We should do that soon. Uh, Bullet was number four. Oliver, number five. Planet of the Apes and Rosemary's Baby both made $15 million. They were tied for six. Romeo and Juliet, then Yours, Mine, and Ours, the... Lucille Ball, Henry Fonda, A Million Kid Family movie. And then 10 was The Lion in Winter. These are all good movies. Yeah. Yeah. There's no grown-worthy movie in there. Yours, Mine, and Ours is... I mean, it's not my kind of movie, but it's it's not terrible. I don't know that one. I'll be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, I mean, besides these movies, there are a lot of, a lot of our favorites, like uh, Uptight and Charlie Bubbles and... Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Herzog's debut, Signs of Life. Rachel, Rachel. Mr. Freedom. Jatem, Jatem. Yeah. Barbarella. Barbarella. Bar- Dandy and Aspic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, Hour of the Wolf, Shame, Teorema, Faces, Yellow Submarine, If, Head, Stolen Kisses, Petulia. So, yeah, it's it's a good year. Skidoo. <laughs> and also a bad year. <laughs> Which is a, a perfect way to set up the uh, the game that we play with all these years, where we pick our favorite movies of the year, our least favorite movies of the year, and uh, a couple movies that we've been dying to see from that year. And that's Kiss, Mary Kill. So I guess we'll start with my kiss, which... I chose because we were trying to talk about like movies from countries that we haven't done yet. And Korea is definitely one of those, but there isn't that many sixties Korean films that we really found though. That's 
maybe our our problem but um so i went i went right for the one of the big ones and i said let's try this at least one korean film and then see what else we can find from there but my choice was a day off by Lee Man-hee. It is pretty well known at this point because the basically when it was made, it, it got totally censored. So I, I don't think that it even had a theatrical release in 68, but it was made in 68 and uh, the original print got rediscovered uh, after it was lost in the Korean film archive very recently in 2005. Was it that recently? Apparently, I'm looking at this is from this is info from the Korean Film Archives website. So, so yeah, and 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 since then it's become you know it's being held up as as being like representational of 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 modern Korean cinema basically, and and you know it was lauded by critics, and so uh, seemed like a good one to to watch for my introduction to 60s Korean cinema, and uh, the plot is that it uh, starts with a young man named Ha Wook getting his um, fortune read by a bird, <laughs> which, is, which is awesome. There's a woman, and she has this little bird in a cage, and she said, you know, he gives her a coin, and, and she opens the cage, and this tiny little bird comes out, and it stacks of paper, and the bird pulls out one piece of paper, throws it at the guy, and then comes back into the cage, and... Uh, the fortune tells him to like avoid women, basically, but it's too late because he's on his way to see Chi Young. And I apologize for my terrible Korean pronunciation, by the way. Ji Young, Ji Chi, something like that. I Korean is terribly transliterated into English. I can't pronounce anything. In <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not very easy. <laughs> but yeah, so so uh, we. We see her and um, we infer her to be his girlfriend and they kind of stand around on this park cliff ledges and dust storms and they look very, very beautiful in this sort of Antonioni kind of way and they're talking about what they want from the future and it becomes clear that Ha Wook has no money and Chi Young is pregnant. They're basically doomed because she's from this family that has some higher standing or at least has money and, and her parents will never let her marry this loser. So the only option is for her to get an abortion. And they're both obviously pained by that. But what can you do? So Ha Wook now needs to rustle up some funds in order to get her abortion. And so the rest of the film is basically following him around as he has to beg, borrow and steal from various acquaintances getting himself further and further into debt and trouble. And I'm on the fence about completely spoiling this, but I'll, I'll say that it is basically just gets more and more depressing <laughs> uh, as it goes on. And uh, it sort of culminates in just like wallowing in pure misery. And that's why the movie was censored. It wasn't even because, I mean, it deals with some, some subject matter that is not, uh, not for kids, but it's definitely not, 
a filthy movie. There's no, nothing is shown really. There's nothing, there's immorality, but there's not, uh, there's nothing that, uh, that should have offended the Korean uh, film officials other than the fact that, uh, that it's a, they didn't want people to be depressed by this movie, I think. Yeah. So according to the Korean film archive site, they say that the censorship authorities wouldn't pass this film because of an implied suicide so it's not even on screen an implied suicide and then the constantly dark atmosphere and apparently the three ri- the, the the screenplay was um submitted three times and turned down three times and the reasons for the first time they said that quote the film has neither uh subjectivity nor artistic value <laughs> the second one said it has subjectivity but no artistic value and then the third, and they say the third absurd reason simply read, quote, it would not it would be better if this kind of film were not made. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they also say on the site that, you know, film critic uh, Ha Moon Young calls this film a, quote, real landscape of modern cinema transcending the ages and how this is, again, a, a very representative piece of modernist Korean film. And it sort of, you know, the, in the way that it speaks to the audience through the filmmaking as opposed to just the dialogue it's not you know there is a ton of dialogue in this where it's people you know standing around and expressing how they feel but like you know as i said there's very much a very uh antonioni style it reminded me a lot of la ventura and how it looks because it's just so much of this like dusty there's all these uh, dust storms happening all the time and people sort of standing off it's beautifully shot beautiful looking so you know the artistic value thing is really dopey when you when you watch this film, but Seoul looks so desolate. I mean, yeah. it's, you, you see a lot of falling down buildings and and you know these hillsides with with nothing on them, and you just sort of you see the tops of some roof of of some houses um, over over the hill, and it's 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 really like the the locations that were chosen for for this film are really pretty interesting. And it, yeah, it's it's beautiful looking, but it's definitely definitely depressing and definitely not a, a very positive portrait of Korea for sure. But what's amazing is there's this is this is exactly the kind of movie that gets made in Korea all the time, like the things that get exported to other countries. Right. So the fact that it was lost until two thousand five is, I guess, what that means is that. The, the spirit of, of filmmaking in Korea still existed, even though this particular movie that seemed, seems like such a harbinger of what was going to come in for Korean cinema uh, was lost. There was enough of this this spirit out there, enough of, uh, of this sort of thing. Like, it's just so many, like, starting in, you know, the, the old boy era in the early 2000s, or just these movie after movie about these men who, who make, you know, terrible choices and, uh, you know, are do, do a lot of do a lot of things wrong. And yet we're still sort of as the audience, we feel implicated like we're, you know, we, we feel their guilt. And, and uh, so it's yeah, it's about these these problematic men who do awful things. And yet we're still kind of on their side. And I'm a big uh, Hong Sang-soo fan, and this movie feels very much like a, 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 a deadly serious version of a Hong Sang-soo movie. So there's something, even though this movie got suppressed, it uh, its its spirit really like 
tick off and, and uh, insp- must have inspired a lot of Korean filmmakers. How did, so, so you like this movie a lot, right? I, I was fascinated with it more than I liked it. It definitely gets too melodramatic for me. There's just a lot of like people going off, like having on these you know philosophical tangents about how awful life is. It sort of reminded me of Gogo Second Time Virgin in that way. Yeah, and that it's just like life is terrible. We should just kill ourselves like over and over and in a million different ways. Yeah. Not, not nearly as sleazy as go, go second time version. Yeah. I mean the whole movie, it definitely, it feels symbolic. Uh, it feels like a self hate note to the country. You know, this idea that, that there is no future for these young, beautiful people. Like I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I don't know that much about 1960s Korean history. I know that there was, a lot of political turmoil there was a, a coup in the early 60s right something like you know like with a lot of like sort of strongman fascist kind of stuff happening and so i know that there was probably a you know this this idea that there is no future was likely you know that that seems to to check out with a lot of things that were happening in the late 60s around the world but um but yeah i don't know this this it, the movie looks beautiful it reminds me of you know some some favorite films but the the melodrama is so ridiculous (laughs) it's like laughable like i don't know i i i had a really hard time with this one like the subject matter is depressing but the way that they go about it is just like the the cheesy music like the sobbing crying where everyone falls to their knees and they scream to the sky kind of stuff it's just so over the top i just hate it (laughs) (laughs) i just can't handle it I agree to a certain extent. It really it kept the movie at a distance for me, but I also I also think it's really interestingly constructed. It's the hopelessness of the of the main characters and of young people in Korea is like right there in the structure of the movie. He's he's got the I'm going to call them he and she because I I can't say their names. He's he's got you know, he's got these money problems. He can't seem to like we don't know why he's got such money troubles and it must be something economic because there's nothing wrong with him uh, you know otherwise he's not you know he's not a drunk he goes to uh, the movie sort of structured around these friends that he goes to see the first one he sees is a total sleaze bag who's sleeping with a different woman every day and we see that our our hero is not like this guy he's just got this one he just he just slept with one random one <laughs> yeah he's got this woman that he's in love with and they ha- they made a mistake but so he, it, you know, that's not his problem. Then he goes to another friend who's a drunk, and and this guy is not a drunk. He's, you know, that's not why he doesn't have money. He's not throwing it away on drink. And then he goes to a third friend who's clearly very wealthy, ends up stealing from him. And you know, at, at that point, he like he's rich for a day. He's got this money that he's stolen from his rich friend, and so he falls into these traps of of the of his other friends he he gets totally wasted drunk he he sleeps around he so it's yeah i mean it sort of captures the the structure of the movie is this sort of vicious cycle of of how you know korean youth is is trapped is you know just and it's through through their own doing as well just uh, you know making making bad decisions and I don't know. It's I mean it's it's sympathetic too, you know, when he does finally he steals this money 
I think they're well. They they go to this great bar called Il Salon or something, Saloon or something. That it's like, and you have this like simple guitar strumming, and it all sounds like a western, and like Spanish flea starts playing. <laughs> uh, it, that was great, but um, it, it was sort of sympathetic because it's just more that like he knows that like everything's miserable. He he's trying and trying to get this money, and he gets it, and it's for something he doesn't even want. You know, like he finally has the money, and then you know, so so his sort of slip backslide into sin as it were you know and that's the other thing maybe that i didn't like about this is just that sort of christian morality kind of stuff just drives me nuts after a while but um you know he, he's finally like you know gives into some degree of temptation because it's like this is his one chance to have any sort of happiness even if it's for a matter of a couple hours and and then he of course loses himself in it and it becomes like you know you can't just have one drink situation and yeah and then he meets this other woman and they have a really nice time and you know and she's very aware obviously like i feel like this is always like the women are much more aware of the, the how the game is played than the men are and she's like you know you're not going to remember me in the morning kind of guarded way and and i really i like that whole um situation i thought it was like a great portrait of both helplessness and and uh, yeah as you said the sort of putting yourself in this situation at the same time and and him realizing like you know okay i'm gonna this is i'm gonna regret all of this and then of course he regrets it much more when big plot twists are revealed but yeah i i think it's it's definitely a a must see for for fans of korean cinema to see that you know 40 years before this you know this current wave of uh, of great s- korean cinema that's you know that's happening now they're 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 making <laughs> making the same kinds of movies yeah and i mean that that's i i for me i definitely find the story behind this and the legacy of this sort of thinking like you're describing to be much more interesting than the film itself. I kind of didn't like this movie at all. And I feel bad about that, mm-hmm. but it might also just be, yeah, that like, you know, it's a very specific, like you have to know exactly what you're getting into, which is an incredibly melodramatic, depressing film about misery and wallowing in misery. And so I think if you're sort of prepared for that, then it, it definitely is, you know, is more interesting to watch and, Maybe one day I'll rewatch it. It's a me problem. It's not the movie's problem. Yeah, I don't want to see this movie again, but it does make me want to explore Korean cinema. Oh, sure. You know, find whatever we can and see uh, see what else was going on. Totally. At the time. My kiss pick for 1968 was The Girls. film directed by my Zaderling. I mean this is just something that I've been meaning to see forever. It's got uh, many of Bergman's uh, stable of actors. Uh, the, it's it centers around a uh, group of three actresses uh, played by BB Anderson, Harriet Anderson, no relation, and uh, Gunnel Lindblom. 
in some respects are just playing themselves, uh, especially B.B. Anderson. She seems to have a level of stardom in, in Sweden that's, uh, that's kind of equivalent to, to the stardom that, uh, that she has in this film. But uh, you know, on top of these Bergman stars, we also get uh, Erland Josefsson and uh, Gunnar Bjornstrand. Um, and if you're not a, <laughs> a Bergman nut like I am, maybe these names don't mean anything to you. But it was exciting for me to see all of these faces in a movie that's actually not that much like a Bergman film. It, uh, it actually reminded me of Fellini far more than, than Bergman. But... Uh, I don't know. It's uh, just just watching these three actresses that I have so much affection for doing a different kind of movie was amazing. Well, I should get into what the movie's about first, but I just I just have to say that I do not understand why this movie is not better known. It's such a a feminist classic. It's it's great. Like I I think part of why I was avoiding it is because n- nobody really talks about it. So I thought, oh, it's probably fine. But it's this is a great movie, and it should be talked about and seen. But anyway, these three actresses are um, are putting are doing uh, an updated version of Lysistrata, which is the Aristophanes play, the ancient Greek play, where the the women decide that uh, we need to stop this war, and the way we're going to do that is by telling our men that uh, we won't have sex with you until. You stop fighting till you end this war. And uh, so we get, uh, you know, we get pieces of the stage plays, you know, little little clips that we we end up like having that end up having resonance in the lives of these women. B.B. Anderson is it's sort of centered around her and she's uh, married to this businessman who's having all sorts of affairs. And uh, and uh, so she's unhappy in her in her marriage. Um and uh, they're—I mean—they're all unhappy in their own way. They're—they're they're sort of, you know, they're—they're they're going on tour with this play and looking forward to getting away from their their lives in in Stockholm, and uh, and their their men. And uh, so we get sort of glimpses into each of their lives and their and their relationship to their significant others. Harriet Anderson is Marianne, and she's uh, she's got uh, she she's had a baby with a married man and uh, just wants him to get a divorce and raise their kid with her. And uh, Gunnel Lindblom is, is a housewife and her, her husband's sweet, but doesn't seem to pay much attention to her. And she's got several kids and, uh, and yeah, so the movie is just sort of going back and forth between um, them on tour with this play and, uh, and, and showing glimpses into their, to their home lives, which as the movie progresses, sort of it gets more and more surreal and the men become more and more caricatures of just awfulness. And yeah, I, it's it's great. Did you, you liked this one, didn't you? Yeah, this was awesome. It really, it reminded me so much of Fellini. It reminded me of, of City of Women, but in like inversed because it's about this like, you know, woman who's who's out of time and disappointed in, in how much she both loves and hates the men of her era, which I kind of feel like City of Women is about a man who's out of time and still loves all the, everyone who hates him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and how the opposite sex definitely becomes more and more caricaturish as as the film 
right progresses exactly and like you know this and more and more surreal yeah and more and like the whole thing kind of loses it it no longer really has a plot which is also what was great about it is that it just becomes more and more philosophical as it goes on and you know this also you know this sort of idea of of women confronting why why things haven't changed since the greek times is kind of what you know the point of the the main character makes is like you know this 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 play isn't really that far off <laughs> this yeah. seems like the same thing that we were all still talking about and why isn't that we haven't made any more progress and is it you know i think it, it it's definitely it's of its time in that it is you know has a very sort of 60s feminist way of thinking it, it's a little it's definitely critical of men and uh it sort of asks women to to become more more militant and stand up for themselves but it's also kind of wondering you know, are, are the men right? Like, is that why we haven't done this? You know, they're still very caught up on what they've been told and what they've been, you know, made made to feel about themselves and this sort of masculine narrative that gets imposed and they're still trying to deprogram themselves. And it's very clear. But yeah, I mean, like, I think that it was still pretty, it, it's it, the problem with this movie is that it, it is progressive and it's also still relevant. <laughs> We've definitely, yeah. I mean, I think that you can, you can see a lot of, changes in progress that's been made since this film but i also think that if you remade this film right now uh and and stuck very close to the script it would yeah you wouldn't have to change anything yeah i don't like i think that there would be a, a handful of lines that you could tweak but like other than that or maybe like you know a couple more you know expansions of of definitions but like otherwise it's like kind of the same <laughs> <laughs> yeah the um serve the the central arc in this is uh B.B. Anderson, who's Liz, who plays Lysistrata in the in the play that they're performing, um, is uh, is just trying to make a connection with with the audience and get them to or just other people like she has. There's this idea that that gets wrestled with like her her husband's job is more important than her job as an actress. And she's she's sort of fighting against that, saying, no, what I'm doing is important people need to understand what this play is saying and how it applies to their lives today. So she's at one point at the, at the end of one of her play after this, this frustration of looking at, at these blank faces in the audience night after night who, who don't seem to be understanding what the play is about. She like sits, stops everything and says, wait, wait, before you leave, let's have a discussion about this play. Let's, you know, let's really talk about what this is about and how, you know, this is this is what it's like for women now. You know, thousands of years later, you know, they're, she's still just greeted by blank faces, and and the the rest of the cast of the play are sort of appalled that she would do this. And there's a great moment after that where they're they're traveling to the next location on the bus, and there's this sort of surreal moment where all the all her friends are like she's she's sitting in the in the front of the bus, and you see all the all the cast behind her, and all the you know, all the people who have turned on her start to disappear one by one and it's uh it's really a, a, a great visual metaphor that i'd never really seen before and it really worked well um i'm not sure i'm doing doing it justice you, you kind of have to see the film to i i love i that scene of her trying to engage the audience in the dialogue is like so good and so awkward and also just it's just that's like one of the things that felt so so relevant is that you know everyone's there to watch this play and then the second that you try to like engage them with this dialogue about 
do do you how do you guys think you know is it possible to change one another is it possible to change where we live it's like the second she asks them to think critically about it everyone just disengages completely or they or they think she's a, a joke you know like there she has one of these fantasies where she um imagines herself like she imagines all these men gathering to to laugh at her corpse you know and it's this sort of like boys club thing they're all just talking amongst themselves like you know when when she's there actually and i think in the scene before that she's doing this like strip tease and they're all shocked you know but they're all more more interested and then when she's like dead it's like they they all are standing around laughing about like oh she took it seriously <laughs> you know what a what a loser and then this like parade and marching band and they carry her corpse around which is like pure pure Fellini, but also just also just a great as you said, great metaphor. But um, but yeah, I mean, like this is in a way this kind of goes back to what uh, a question we've asked continually on this show, which is like, were people just more engaged back then that they were making such thoughtful films or or not? And this movie seems to say no. Yeah, although there must have been some kind of audience for it to have gotten made. Yeah, clearly, but. But also, I don't know, maybe it's like that this idea that, you know, people were showing up because it was trendy or because it was what you were meant to be doing or because it was the only thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're right now in our society. We're taking film seriously. So let's go to this. Uh, yeah, let's go to the serious film. This arty movie and uh, and uh, and just and tell people that we went to see it, not understand what we're watching, but but, you know, let people know that we're. We're, we're doing what we're, we're supposed to do. We're, we're taking film seriously. Well, I love, too, where she, she's, like, somewhere else in, in Sweden and goes to a travel agency and says, I heard that there was, like, a, a program where you can get placed with families to, like, you know, see Sweden. And they were like, not for you. <laughs> yeah. It's for foreigners, not for And she ends up going home with, the, like, the manager, you know, to meet his wife and all that. You know, it's not, like scandalous like it's literally like he's like all right why don't you come to my house for dinner and she's like sitting there you know the wife is apparently a, claims to be a big fan of hers because she's you know a well-known actress and then she shows up and she's trying to engage them in, in intellectual debate and you kind of hear their thoughts as they sort of stone-faced stare at her and they're just like why is she talking about this like what like <laughs> who it like like i don't know what to tell her and of course they they politely agree with everything she says and internally they're like this woman needs to leave <laughs> she's looking old right she looks, she looks great on the stage but in person she really she's she's got got lines around her eyes and, and yeah i mean that stuff is is great how she's constantly trying to make this connection and just gets nothing from anybody and i love too how it all sort of like culminates in this final scene of everyone celebrating the end of the play in this like gorgeous looking like egyptian theater where was that i want to go there it looked awesome <laughs> like like gilded walls you know this sort of old style cinema or or dance hall or something it was like totally it was like ridiculous looking even in black and white you're like oh my god this is awesome but um you know, like someone comes over to, you know, everyone, they're like, oh, you're, you know, you're so wonderful in the play. And her husband's like, you should see her in bed, you know, like, <laughs> it's like right at like, you know, it's just like one, two punch of like, she can't have anything, you know, even even when the whole they throw an entire, you know, party to celebrate her and, and her play, you know, like the, the men have to still get one over on them. They're, the climax of the movie is this fantasy sequence that Liz has when, um, on the steps, they're, they're, I, I don't know where they are. I don't know 
my Swedish geography enough to know where they would be, where there's, you know, it's really official, important government buildings. Um, she's, she's sort of walking around, taking a tour of the place and, and imagines each of her, her and, and her two friends, Harriet Anderson and Gunnar Lindblom, each on the steps making a speech to try and inspire the, the women of Sweden, the women of the world to, to kind of take a stand and you know, make, make their lives better, you know, show their worth. And it gives each, each of them gives a different type of speech that's very much in keeping with their personality. Gunilla, uh, Gunnel Lindblom is, uh, you know, she's the most comic of the three, I guess. Um, and she's um, just gives this really sort of shy speech about how, um, you know, housewives need to need to be paid for their work. And, you know, aren't I aren't I right, girls? Isn't this, you know, and she's just lacks the confidence to to inspire anybody. And, um, you know, that's followed by Marianne's really passionate speech. That's, re you know, very inspiring. But what she's talking about is how this is our our fault women this is you know we bring this on ourselves we we torture ourselves we talk about how awful our lives are and then it's all men's fault and that's and that's great let's suffer let's let's enjoy how awful our lives are and make men feel bad about themselves for how how awful they've made our lives and and finally you know, Marianne sort of gives this this more balanced speech about it's not fair this has been going on for for centuries or this is you know, the, but this shouldn't be our our lot in life, and and we we sort we do kind of bring it on ourselves, and just because you know we we can be petty sometimes and indecisive, it doesn't mean that we don't deserve better, and this this sort of in, in, inspires in this fantasy inspires a, a riot of women that just being being petty and indecisive and not not thinking about the the big picture, and it's it's I mean this movie presents these really like sharp feminist ideas like how you know but more about the the failure of 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 women to to really to to stand up for themselves and and get the the, the worth that they deserve and so the, the movie doesn't it has you know it has a positive ending in in personal terms with each of these these three women in a way they sort of figure out what it is that they really want and need, but there's no, there's, there doesn't seem to be any answers to the the questions that are brought up in Lysistrata itself. Like, but what do we do? How do women stand up for themselves? Um, so yeah, it, it's missing, and that's what I mean by like it, it's sort of stuck in its time in that sense. Which again, like you know, what else could it be? But um, it is sort of like it, it's still missing. It needs to pull back further, I think, and realize that it's like it's not. It's not just the, the players, but it's the game kind of thing. You know, it's the structure of the society that they're living in, which is the real issue. And uh, I mean, even then the question is, well, well, now what? You know, and I think that that's still a valid. I don't think that this is like, you know, I, I think this is, a again, a very impressive and pretty relevant film. The thing that, that really struck me, though, and I think that this is reflected in the film, but I don't know that this was, it feels like more of a subconscious um, thing that maybe uh, my Zeterling didn't I don't know like either that, that you know maybe it came across her, her mind but it's not in the movie so uh, it's just that you know Fellini when he has these kind of fantasies about things he's always indulging himself when he does you know that's why I kind of feel like I, I you know people will call Fellini sexist occasionally but I, I 
have a lot of empathy for the way that Fellini showcases his own sexism because it feels very fantasy-like. It feels very dreamlike. And you get the sense that he does, he, he knows what it is, but it's also like, well, what do you, what else are you going to fantasize about if it's not going to be about me, me, me? And so I kind of, I can, I can give him a pass for a lot of that because I, I find it, you know, relatable. Obviously I'm not fantasizing about, you know, all of my ex-girlfriends, but, um, with her, with, with Zetaling, she doesn't have any, there's no fantasy sequences, uh, about lust in this. There, there are scenes where it's about like, you know, and granted, I get part of it is about, you know, withholding sex to get what you want. So maybe that's why she did it. But I feel like there should have been some scene where it was about men catering to these women. And there's no scenes like that. And in fact, she even in her own fantasy world, it's about women getting, you know, spanked and when like women, women being punished by men for the things that they're trying to do, even when it's like, you know, let's start a riot of women punching each other out. <laughs> you know, it's like mm-hmm. the men come around and, and like break things up. So it's like there it's this sort of it feels like a subconscious thing. It's like she doesn't fully realize um, just how much of that gets ingrained internally and that, you know, that she's still thinking of men is creating structure a little bit too much in some sense. I don't know if you you felt that way. I I definitely know what you're talking about. I but I also think that Marianne's fantasy at the end, like her the resolution for her character is done almost completely in fantasy. We don't really know what happens with her in real life, but she has this this fantasy that's based on Lysistrata itself where she sort of caves into her lust and and uh you know, takes this this man who's like, I, ju- I just need, I need somebody come sleep with me, and you think, oh no, she's her character is 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 letting down all the other women by caving into her lust, but, and, you know, so th- this fantasy is sort of a struggle between her saying, you know, fighting this lust and saying, no, no, I can I can use this to get what I want. So it, as that as the fantasy progresses, she sort of like keeps putting off having sex with this guy and you know as like oh but we need we need a bed oh and the bed needs sheets and the the we need a blanket and we need and she like tucks him into a tomb yeah and the you know this this house she sort of creates this this home around this guy and it's it's just from withholding sex and you know putting her her lustful thoughts at bay and uh and so yeah i mean it's not it's not necessarily avoiding the idea of a female lust, but it's also it's still catering to this idea that that if you withhold male lust, that's more powerful than than withholding female lust. And I think that that's the thing that like kind of like that's when it gets stuck in sixtiesness. But yeah. it's again, that's just like a mod. That's like a very modern critique of something that I think is still very relevant and interesting and has quite a lot to say that that thing that you mentioned about uh you know why why don't um housewives have wages i mean it's like come on (laughs) yeah plenty of you know debates in this film and and you know things about like men coming over to women and you know oh come over to our table like no thanks what do you mean no thanks you know stuff like that and i actually one of the things i really liked was when um i think it was bb anderson the problem is i i don't i don't recognize all they all look like the same woman to me so this is why i'm not using character names when i'm talking about this <laughs> i know bb anderson the rest of them i don't know by by look but um uh, i think it was her though or she she's in the store and she's trying to buy something 
and she says oh can i have like i forget what she's buying but the the you know the guy at the counter says oh you can have anything sweetheart oh that that's gonna Lindblom and and that's her husband who's in the fantasy is the is the register guy yeah and she and, and she's like well I have it all you know and and this sort of but I thought that that was a particularly interesting you know this idea and I think this is still something that we hear a lot is that you know women well you have everything you know you're you're beautiful and powerful and 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 but it's like what do you really have you know she's still being chased by these mobs of <laughs> children and you know she doesn't feel like she has anything it's just that you know they they tell her she has things but she doesn't have anything to show for it so yeah you've i've given you this perfect life so what what are you complaining about how could you possibly need need for anything right but yeah this was great this was wonderful yeah this this isn't the only great movie we watched uh this week but this is the one that really hasn't gotten enough attention and needs to get more so so run out and watch Flicorna or The Girls. Well, then I think we move right on into our Marys, which are the movies that we both know and love. And uh, this was a little hard this year to choose one that we that I loved. But I decided let's go for The Swimmer. picked right yeah directed by frank perry and starring uh, burt lancaster and uh, janice rule and uh, a bunch of people (laughs) and but mainly burt lancaster yes old good old burt lancaster and his buns (laughs) his tight little buns Yeah, he doesn't get naked in this film so Uh he gets full frontal but he's so far away you can't tell you do see his butt, though. I'll take it. But this is such a weird movie, and it felt actually like Kiss, Mary Kill was the perfect time to watch it, because I don't know how else we could have gotten to it other than just doing a whole Frank Perry episode, which would have been great, but I think we've already done too many of his films to, yeah. <laughs> to not repeat ourselves. But um, the plot, Ned Merrill, uh, who is Burt Lancaster, shows up at his friend. They live in, you know, this, like... I think it's like Long Island, like, you know, East Long Island suburbia. So everyone owns like a little mansion and, you know, they have their their grounds and all of that. Um, But a little like it's between being rural and and suburban. And um, he shows up in in swim trunks and jumps into their pool. Everyone's sitting around totally hungover, as you do when you're rich and live in the 60s and you're middle aged. (laughs) Uh, and, and we also sort of find out everyone works in advertising and, uh, you know, everyone's like, oh my God, Ned, wow, I, I didn't know you were in town. And, and he has this, like, it's that Burt Lancaster way of, I always find Burt Lancaster to be so false and that's 100% why I, I like love him. 
He has this total. <laughs> it's perfect for this movie. It's perfect, and it, and he has this falseness, and he has this like you know there there's there's layers there. You know, I'm I, I'm not I'm not even trying to insult him. I, I this is like one of the the best parts of Burt Lancaster, and and so he says like yeah like you know oh I'm here to swim, and then he looks off into the hills and he sees all of these other houses. He can tell, you know, going up this hill, and he he it suddenly clicks in his head. If I jog to every one of these houses and swim in each one of these pools, because the conversation says, oh, so-and-so put a, a pool in. And he goes, wait a minute. And he looks and, and sees and says, I could swim home through everybody's backyard pool. And by the time that I get across the, you know, the top of the hill, I'll be home. And suddenly this like clicks on him and he's like totally obsessed with like this idea he calls. He decides he's going to name it after his wife. He says the Lucinda River. He calls it. He says I'm going to I'm going to swim home through everybody's pools, and everyone's like, "What?" <laughs> and then he does it. He just keeps running to every single neighbor, and um, there's crazy music. There's like some confusing uh, editing, and it is just that he's just swimming in everyone's pool. And as the film goes on we learn more and more about who Ned actually is and what people actually think about Ned, whereas the first couple of people are very welcoming and people get increasingly hostile towards him as he goes from pool to pool to pool, uh, sort of culminating in a public pool, which is totally a, a, the, the most chaotic, claustrophobic, but also very real representation of a public pool. <laughs> and... Yeah, and then by the end, it it gets you learn everything as you go, and and it's completely different film than than when it started. And Ned is a completely different person than who you expected him to be. And the first time I saw this, it was like, it was just such a revelation. I, like the the most modern version of this that I can think of parallel for this would be Mad Men, and what Mad Men does uh, plot wise throughout all of its seasons i think is exactly what like the swimmer does it in an hour and a half and it in arguably even better <laughs> tearing tearing down the 60s man it's tearing down the 60s man but it's also like it's it's tearing down everything it's like tearing down the entirety of of 60s society and culminating in 68 where things were actually being torn down and and people were starting to really get uh, you know, go out in the street and, and get angry about things. And so like it, it it's it's doing everything like that in one film, except it's doing it through this way that's like also like can only describe as Twin Peaks. <laughs> it's like the the way that the dialogue is and the way that Burt Lancaster is just so sunny, but so false throughout the entire thing and it's just he's got that Burt Lancaster grin plastered on all the time and it's like what's great about that is he he never seems like he has any internal life and it's perfect for this role like he's nothing but surface in the, in this movie and that's you know until the very end when when it all sort of gets revealed but but that's that's why he's so perfect for this because it only works because he's so unaware of anything other than what he represents for the whole movie and it's nobody else could play this role yeah it's like it, it's a movie it's about a very particular community of white suburban people of of a certain men really of a certain age and just how thin and vapid they are and their lives but then that gets spinned as you keep going 
it gets spinned into this deconstruction of the American dream and of masculinity and then the mid-century suburban myth. And it just like, it builds in this way that like, I just, you don't see coming the first time you watch it because you're so confused by all of the other choices in the film. And if you can just like stick with it, like my friend Carlo, uh, you know, watched this and he thought it was just like watching The Room because it's that weird. <laughs> but I think it's like, it's just so smart and it's so well done and it's so perfectly cast. And yeah, it's just this whole, you know, it's like if your whole life is is built on the worth that other people give to you, then you're worthless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love this movie. It's, uh, I mean... I wish there were more movies like this. It's, I mean, it's definitely sort of a weird, surreal kind of movie. It just, it's it's a series of events that could never happen in real life. So it has kind of a dream logic to it. But scene to scene, each, you know, each house that he goes to, they're they're all dealt with in sort of a realistic way. It's like if you didn't know that this is following immediately on another scene that's sort of a variation of the same thing, you would think, oh, this is not, this is a fairly realistic drama because you see, like, oh, the, these people who used to know this guy are interacting with him because he wanted to swim in the pool, and, you know, a little strange, but it's it's still pretty realistic, but it's just the the, the way that each scene builds on each other that's all, it, it becomes so much you know, a, a, a buildup of symbols and metaphors. And it, it just, it becomes really powerful. I mean, seeing this a second time, I, it really has become one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. I, and, and it, you know, all the things that confused me the first time, like the, I thought the, the music felt like it belonged in a different film. And I thought the editing was a bit strange, but then the watch rewatching it, I'm like, no, the whole thing's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a perfect film. Yeah, it's It's made uh, by aliens on LSD, but it's a perfect perfect movie. Yeah, it's based on a John Cheever story, which makes sense because this is definitely the world of John Cheever, these these white suburbanites who are you know having existential crises. But uh but yeah, I'd love to read the original because I don't know you know, it, it seems like such a crazy idea for a movie and the fact that that Eleanor Perry decided, uh, oh, yeah, I could I, I could make a movie out of this is I, ha- I have <laughs> so much respect for the, the fact that, uh, that the Perry's thought this was even a possibility. She crushes just... it each and every time I've like, you know, the fact that the, the that both of them are not more well known as far as like, you know, the sort of classic canon of cinema. I don't, I just fully do not understand. I feel like I like pretty much everything they made was amazing. Yeah. And they're short lived. They, in the sixties and early seventies, they, they were making a bunch of great stuff and then it just sort of petered out. I guess they, nothing made enough money. I think they got divorced. Well, that's, yeah, that's probably, that makes sense because, uh, compromising positions what frank perry's movie in the 80s is uh has nothing to do with some of these great movies he was making earlier it's all eleanor <laughs> yeah probably is but uh yeah i i don't even it's it's hard to to talk about this movie because it's such it's so weirdly structured but it it definitely i don't know how to what to like the only comparison i can make is that the beginning of the movie is looking you know, through the wrong end of a telescope at, at this guy. Like he's, 
he's as he's <laughs> I don't I don't even know he's you know he's a, he starts out a great distance from his home and he's interacting with these people who don't know you know haven't seen him in a good long time and think he's still this successful businessman that he's he's always been and uh, and it's, no they have an inkling well they they have an inkling but it's it's also you know they're also like jealous of him it's like oh you're in such great shape we wish you know why why don't we see you more you should come to this next party with us and we should you know it's it's like there there are hints that they're they they know something about his problems but they're it's still like he's he's the same old same old uh Ned Ned Merrill that he he's always been and uh and yeah and and by all appearances like he's in he's in terrific shape he spends the entire movie in a speedo wearing nothing nothing but a speedo except for that one scene where he takes off the speedo because <laughs> um, he's at a nudist the house of these two the oldest people in the film and they're both sitting there naked on their estate and so respectfully he removes his swim trunks yeah so but as as the as this, this telescope collapses like it becomes more for you know you get sort of a you get closer and closer to the the real the real vision of who this guy is like as he gets closer to his home more people know about his i'm going to say tragic circumstances but it's only tragic if you care about the the uh you know the destruction of the uh of the 60s wealthy white male uh businessman i don't i just love i love that structure he's he's like he's swimming he's swimming uphill like a He's constantly compared to animals in this movie. Like this, his swim back home uphill is—he's—he's he's like a, a spawning salmon, and and uh, you know at the beginning of the movie, there's like the, you know, you see the owl and this this rabbit that's running from the owl, and there's there's some sort of this idea that is oh is he is he the predator or is he the prey? And and there's there's another scene where he's jogging around this. Um, He's compared to a stallion. He's with this old babysitter that you know this this young baby beautiful twenty year old <laughs> something woman who used to babysit for his kids and and she's you know always had this massive crush on him and and uh, so he's you know strutting his stuff jumping over these uh, these hurdles like this this you know prize stallion that he is and uh, and he on his last jump he twists his ankle so he spends the rest of the movie with a twisted ankle. So he's like, you know, this, the prize stallion who's, uh, who, who broke his leg and just needs to be put down. And it's, you know, and he's crossing, trying to cross the road like a, like a, a tortoise. And, you know, to get back to his home, there's this big highway that he needs to cross. And it's just, it's, uh, it all plays out on a really symbolic level. And, uh, and I love that stuff. Yeah. There's so much great symbolism in this that does all of the explanation for you. And I don't think that it, it's not like hard to understand the, the the structure of the film is confusing, I think. But the what it's doing is is like it, very straightforward and in a way that's really both intellectually satisfying, but also just clever as hell. Uh, I also the the thing that struck me this time around was the dialogue and the way that he talks the, the, he live. He's like his his words are living in this fantasy land. He talks about you know looking up at the sky and he's like, it's like a dream city, a scene from the bow of a ship, 
I'd love to see those glistening white domes and the minarets. And everyone around him is like, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? Yeah, he's always, he's always gazing off into the distance at this like beautiful dream that only he can see. Yeah. And, and, and talking this way. And and then yeah, the way that and, like, you know, the way that the, as you were saying with the babysitter, the way that, you know, she sits there and she's really frank about these like slightly sexual fantasies that she had as a teenager about him. And he's like very, very touched, but he's also like, you know, it, the, the thing is like, it, you know, he breaks her own fantasy by sort of almost, he doesn't, <laughs> you keep waiting for him to do something worse, but, but, but he starts to kind of buy into her fantasy and the second that he starts to buy into it and tell her things like you know i'm gonna be your protector she gets freaked out you know and she she has to leave this commentary on on this you know the white knight fantasy and and the reality of it and just how you know i it's that i guess it's a a bit of that deconstruction of camelot stuff yeah it is it's a -a one-of-a-kind movie there's there's there isn't anything like it i mean you compared to mad men but there's you know, just the way that it's put together has nothing to do with Mad Men. And it's it's hard to talk about just because it is utterly unique. So I I don't know what to say other than people should absolutely see it. It's got a, a beautiful new restoration on Blu-ray that's supposed to be, it's not what we watch, but it's supposed to be incredible looking. I compare it to Mad Men in that I'm positive that this was a huge influence on Mad Men. So if you liked Mad Men, then this is, this is the... The Ur Madman. This is the OG, and it's better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my Mary pick uh, is a movie that uh, was almost completely unknown until Criterion released the DVD uh, 15 years ago or so. It's Symbiopsychotaxiplasm, take one. Is that what we've been getting all the time? That's dreadful. by William Greaves and uh, if we thought The Swimmer was hard to describe this movie is (laughs) nearly impossible but I'm gonna give it a shot and this was a movie that the first time I saw it it just kind of blew me away but I was not really sure what was happening or what it was doing or if what it was doing was intentional so part of my reason for picking this as my Mary pick is because I do love this but I also wasn't sure that watching it a second time, I wouldn't like totally see through what it's trying to do and realize, oh, this this really is not the masterpiece I thought it was. But it is. Watching it a second time, it, it, it absolutely confirmed for me that this totally experimental, semi-documentary about William Greaves playing Bill Greaves, playing himself or a version of himself, is filming a scene... Well, first he's he's auditioning some actors for a film that he's making in Central Park. And so we see several actors doing this sort of poorly written bit of dialogue, very you know, you know, very sexual in nature. It involves you know, abortions and and this woman's husband actually being gay and 
you know, it's 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 ripe for melodrama, but it's it's poorly written, so no actor could ever really sort of sell this stuff, and that's part of the point of this whole thing. It's it's hard to know where to start to describe this, but it's the the movie itself is very much about performance. So it, it sort of moves on from there to them actually filming the scene that we see these people auditioning for and in, in just a, a spot in Central Park. And so we've got the camera crew that's filming this scene that Bill Greaves is directing. Then he's also he's called in another camera crew to film him directing this scene and then there's a third camera crew that is filming him being filmed directing this scene so there are three sets of camera crews in in central park and um the the crew for this this small production become sort of the stars of the film that we're watching even though the film that's being made is mainly these you know a man and a woman and uh, it's just so many layers of, like, on some level, it's all reality. On, you know, it it is a documentary in a way, but everybody is performing in it, and and more than anything, it's just analyzing performance, and you're being asked in every scene to to question whether what you're seeing or how much performance is involved in in what you're watching, and it's. I mean, it's the first time I saw it, it just seemed like a crazy mess. It's like, oh, he had all this all this footage and he, he put it together and it really like the scenes bounce off each other. But I wasn't convinced that that William Greaves knew exactly what he was doing when he was making this film. But this time through, I realized that he's he really this is totally masterminded and that the character that he's playing in front of the second and third sets of camera is an act like he's. One of the most actorly parts of the movie is when he's saying, like he's just looking across Central Park at this woman with large breasts riding a horse. And it's like, oh, look at look at the knockers on her. And and just like this, it's almost clear that he's trying to present himself as a you know, sleazy sexist sort of person just so that other people who are on the on the set are sort of free to be themselves and, and not... It's it's really difficult to describe this thing, but it is like some of the best parts of this movie are when everybody but Bill Greaves is in a room sort of discussing what's happening in this movie, that they're not really clear what they're supposed to be doing or what the point is. Like they read his his description of what he's trying to accomplish with this movie, but they're not sure that he knows what he's doing. And so they're like there's sort of a mutiny going on in that they they think, well, what can we do to keep this movie on track? Because our director clearly doesn't know what he's doing. And then, I mean, at one point, the I think he's the assistant director. They're sort of the guy with glasses who who becomes sort of the the second main character. And he uh, he says, well, I mean, this is all what we're filming right now is footage that Bill is can can use in the final film or or not use. And people in the audience won't know if. You know, Bill is behind that door and and directing, it, telling us what to do, and it's really just it's this am- amazing collage of trying to capture reality on film, and it's you know coming to the conclusion that everything is performance. How did I do? <laughs> I think you nailed okay. it. I think you nailed it. I think right. you know. I, I'm with you. I, I think that um, Graves is definitely 
doing a lot more than is obvious. And I think what he's doing is that he's casting himself as an antagonist because there's nothing, there's, you know, if, if you have a great film set shoot uh, and set, then, you know, people aren't going to be complaining about what you're shooting. They're just, you know, they're there to, to do a job. And, you know, maybe they'll be bitching about something. Oh, my previous job, yada, yada. But if you want them to talk about what's currently happening, you do one thing that's out of line or you, you know, throw them off their guard and then put them all in a room and then let them talk about you. And the only way to do that is to be sort of, you know, because he's always nice and no one says anything bad about him, but they also are questioning him. And I think it's like if you've worked on a film set or you've been on this sort of like I mean actually I think any any office setting where like you know the manager is uh maybe not a, a bad person but is not a great manager um and if you're not sitting there with your coworkers trying to figure out what the problem is then I don't, I can't relate with you because I'm the I'm <laughs> the one who is always like uh hey everyone let's organize uh and, and figure out like gee uh you know what what do you think the problem is and and yeah, and that's totally encouraged in this. And uh, I would guess too that likely, you know, this is such a low budget thing that people probably also have. There's a there's a degree of tension with that. And so, um, you know, there there's it's it's definitely it's interesting. This was my first time watching this. I've known of it, but I've never seen it. And I I spent most of it not. I I mean, it wasn't terribly confusing to see what it was doing i just didn't know that i really the the problem with with improv and the problem with this sort of thing that is non-scripted is that it's only as good as your you know the smartest person is in the room is and if people don't know how to do improv then you're you get stuck and i think that this movie there's there's a lot of hiccups in it it's not a very smooth watch for me but it addresses what you're saying exactly. and it does like that's and that's in what's there. interesting and that's why that's what i i can't you know that's why i can't hate on it but i also but it's not fun <laughs> <laughs> i i think it's really fun and i it's it's not even really improv everybody is trying to but you don't know that either and that's that's what i like about this yeah. i mean it's it, it it's amusing i i just it, you know and it and it is it, at the end, I felt like it, it it touched upon something that was that was actually sort of profound uh, in that, you know, this this self-aware, like pseudo intellectual artifice that's all being spun, you know, for as long as the film is happening. And then like, you know, it gets it basically the, the 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 way that this film ends. And if it didn't end this way, I don't know that I would have thought that it was that interesting, but it ends with this like homeless guy coming over and derailing the entire thing. Yeah, I mean, I. It's weird to say that there's, there's a spoiler for a movie like this, but, and we have to talk about the scene. There's no way to talk about it, but it really like, out of nowhere. I'm sorry, I interrupted what you were saying, but yeah, this. <laughs> it's go, just go real life for you, and, man. It's just real life. No, but yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, yeah. I don't even know. I, it, I, I don't think there's a spoiler in this because the you have to watch the whole thing to even understand what we're talking about like it's not you know like if someone had told me exactly what i was going to watch i don't know that it would have changed my opinion of it particularly but um but yeah i mean i guess i won't get get too far into the homeless guy but like as as uh, to me 
I mean, on, on one hand, it doesn't get more New York than an entire movie set getting cleared out by one homeless dude, like, monologuing <laughs> about himself. You know, that's like that's like an everyday occurrence. Like, that's all the time. I totally get that. Someone yelled at me the other day when I walked past them and about, you know, this total, like, projection about <laughs> about themselves aggressively yelled at me. And I was like, yeah, okay. But, um... So yeah, that's just that to me on one hand, I just found that funny because it just felt like that that to me was the realest part of this entire thing. Everything else felt like we're going to set up a situation because of all the cameras, because of the watching myself, watching myself, watching myself. None of it feels real, even if they're really doing it. Uh, you just that's when, you know, and, and they discuss this within the film is that how can, as you said, how can we tell if what we're doing right now is is real or not? And because it's being presented on a, on film, you it's inherently already one step removed from reality. So how do you actually capture reality? And even if they brought this homeless guy in and paid him five bucks to come in and do what he did, uh, that still got closer to reality to me than the rest of the film ever does. Yeah, I mean, his it's still a performance. You, he arrives and sort of does his thing. Like, it's not, he's just talking about his life, and he's not, it's definitely not scripted, and it's not improvised because you get the impression that he loves to just talk about himself to, to strangers. Yeah, I mean, it's reality on that level, but it's also this performance that he's sort of perfected. It's just a, a life performance. It's not a performance for the cameras. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a fascinating way to end this this film on performance, and it couldn't it couldn't have ended in a better way. Totally, totally. I mean, like everything everything is performance is sort of the the key of this, I think. And I mean, also like we didn't really talk about what the actors that they hired are doing, and I found that kind of fun. The way that they, you know, they keep going through. Some of it felt stagey, but like I just like this idea of them having this corny dialogue and then giving the same performance in multiple ways or having multiple people try and read the same script and coming out with like, even just the way that they're reading it, whether it was very intense or very subdued and, and just sort of showing you how much the the reading and how much, you know, can change in a script depending on how, you know, what the actor is bringing to it and, and what's being, you know, how they're saying it and how it's being shot and the, the environment on set and, you know, all of all of these things that are that are coming in to help build a, either a, a believable performance or not. And what starts out as very, very stagey and, and corny does kind of get they occasionally they, they get these real hints of a true performance out of out of the actors that they have. And, and it kind of comes and goes. But um, I thought it was interesting. Well, then at one point, Bill says to them, OK, now forget about the script. Just do what you're doing in the scene, but use your own words. And which is hilarious because there's so much there's so many specific like plot points and what they're talking about in this dialogue for them to sort of have the same argument about the same things without using the dialogue that he's scripted. Like he's trying to get at this reality he's saying, but I don't this these these words were only meant as like a skeleton for for the actors to build off of. But then they, you know, once they start improvising, they just sort of keep repeating these same shrill things at each other. And, you know, it just gets heightened. They start screaming, you know, just, uh, you know, calling, calling each other names. And, uh, and it just gets hilariously bad when, 
when we think they're doing what what Bill is trying to accomplish with this whole experiment. And I mean, I think like Herostratus, we had this complaint about that movie where the director asked the actors on screen to improvise their dialogue and they're terrible right. at it. And it, it, had the, uh, it had the opposite result. Like it felt further removed from reality because this is, you're not supposed to talk like people talk in, in real life in a movie. It just takes away from the this like fake reality that we all accept needs to be in a movie. Um, but I, the, I don't get any of that in this because it's all very aware of what, you know, nobody, nobody has been cast in this movie because, you know, somebody thought they were good at improvising. It's almost because they weren't good at improvising that it makes this movie so, so interesting. Yeah, definitely. And that's definitely, like, that's on purpose. Yeah. And one thing we didn't mention, which is always comes into discussion into you know any discussion of this film is the fact that William Greaves is black and there's there's not much discussion of race in the movie itself but he is a black filmmaker and he's he was an actor he is uh you know in the 50s had some some starring roles in in some film Hollywood films made for black audiences and uh and so there's I mean I don't even know what to do with you know how to how to discuss race in this movie other than it's significant because he's a black filmmaker and it's we're watching a black filmmaker direct you know people of a, a multiracial cast and crew and uh and that's part of I mean that's part of what makes it so New York but it's also you know what makes this movie you know the the dynamics of it seem unusual or significant or, or or something i just i i don't know what to do with the with with race when talking about this movie i but, think it just goes back yeah. to uh, you know something that i've said before on this podcast is that it's just it, it comes across as just a shame as like this is the kind of movie that we could have had <laughs> yeah. you know and and we don't because we didn't want black filmmakers back then you know, I mean, like there were there were a few, but you know, if if this had been if this if there had been more of a you know a welcome environment and you know white people weren't so busy gatekeeping, then you know we could have probably had more things that were more intriguing. And I think that there is an inherently uh, minority view of of the world of this idea of knowing you know seeing yourself from multiple levels in multiple ways and and having this sort of split sense of identity uh and knowing how you act in front of a camera and how you act in front of a white person how you act in front of your family how you act in uh the public how you act at home how you act in front of your spouse you know like this sort of the the you know it's like the the i want to say duality but it's more than two but having all of these different you know the this idea of watching yourself watching yourself continuously because that's how you're you're being watched and that's something that i think you know women have some sense of this is like internal you know male gaze that gets forced on you and and minorities definitely experience that and uh and yeah you know it's like it's he's broadening it i don't really i'm, I'm with you i don't think that this is a movie about race particularly but it is um i think it's inherently tied to like i don't know that a 
I'd, I would have been very surprised if a white guy made this movie in 68. And I think that the perhaps the white version of this is the swimmer. Hmm. You know, and it's not the character. It's not the, the, ma- the male white character who no- notices it, but it's the people around him kind of recognizing that he doesn't, what he doesn't notice and what he's not seeing. Yeah, I don't know. I, I have to think about that one. I'm not sure you're right, but... But you may I be. wouldn't say that if it wasn't that we just talked about the swimmer, but <laughs> like, I think that there is a connection there. Yeah. I mean, there is. I think you you spend a lot of the movie waiting to see if race is an issue, if there's any, like you're, you're, you're waiting to see, you know, spot some like some white person who's resentful of the the fact that a, it's a black guy who's telling me what to do on this set. And, and the, the fact that you're watching it through that lens is significant, even though it never really shows up in any major way. It's still the lens through which you're watching this film. And that's definitely interesting. I mean, I, it, it wouldn't surprise me if part of the reason why the film crew was maybe questioning Greaves' decision-making had to do with race, even if it was subconscious, but I, there's nothing on the screen that I particularly saw that, that backs that up. Yeah, but the black members of the crew were just as you know concerned about him having no idea what he was doing, but it did seem like the, you know, the initial sparks of, uh, of rebellion were, were the white members of the crew. I also am not convinced that the assistant director wasn't in on the whole plan like he's he has such so many sharp things to say that seem like they're really like pointing at the point of this at the at the whole reason for this movie existing that he he may have been a plant or he may not have been he he just might be a sharp observer. well the fact that he straight up says like we don't know if anyone here is a plant to me is like <laughs> <laughs> yeah this it's ex- exciting to have gotten to this point in the 60s where we can talk about Movies like this. Yeah. Movies like The Swimmer and Symbio Psycho Taxi Plasm and The Girls and they're all fantastic films that are totally unique, totally, you know, absolutely must watch films for anybody now looking for uh for interesting films that, that you know, were made a long time ago and nobody's made anything like it since and they still play fantastically well. But uh the the movies we're about to to move on to uh, it's I think I think it's a good thing that nobody's making movies like this like these anymore oh. <laughs> uh, God well I like yours actually but mine I hate the girl on the motorcycle oh, yeah. directed by Jack Cardiff I'm going to go ahead and say I this is the movie we've watched for Cinema 60 that I hate most. <laughs> uh, you're not wrong. You are not wrong. Starring Marianne Faithful, Alain Delon, Roger Mutton. That's it. 
there's other people there that you might know, but you know what? Who cares? (laughs) (laughs) You can summarize this plot in about uh, two sentences. Yeah, I could. I mean, it's, this is Marianne Faithful plays Rebecca and um, she is the girl on the motorcycle. She gets married to her uh, very nice button down, you know, attractive and youthful husband who is a teacher and she spends all of five seconds married to him. I think like a two months or something. And then just wakes up one morning and decides I married the wrong man. And we get the rest of it is basically her traveling across multiple, like I think she's countries, yeah, multiple countries, but it's all these little tiny, it's like, like, you know, Alsace and, and to all the way to Germany uh, through Switzerland and all that. I don't know if it's through Switzerland. I'm pretty sure they go to Switzerland. <laughs> they mentioned Switzerland. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. I'm sorry if my geography is terrible. But um, that she then is riding this motorcycle. We learn through flashback that she was, you know, dating her husband, uh, Raymond. And she, while she was dating him, she met Daniel, who's played by Delon. And, of course, he's Delon in 68. This is like peak, the most beautiful Alain Delon who's ever existed like this is the height of masculinity and men have gone downhill ever since <laughs> let's be honest and um so you know like she runs into him and he at first he's in the bookstore that her father owns and he like sexually harasses her and she thinks that's super hot and then they run into each other on a ski slope and um it is implied that he comes in and rapes her at night which is also totally hot and fun everyone loves that uh, and because first she leaves the door unlocked because she wants Raymond to come in because, you know, they're going to probably get married. And then he does come in at night and they're in separate rooms and yada, yada. And, and then she decides she pretends to. Be yeah, sleeping. she pretends to be asleep. She decides, actually, I can't go through with it. He's just too, you know, some degree of like she's a virgin, but he's a virgin situation. Like she just can't she can't bring herself to do it. And in part because he asked for permission you know, like he's not like ripping her clothes off. And so she doesn't, when he leaves, she go actually falls asleep and then wakes up and there's somebody who's forced his way into the room and, you know, has sex with her. And she realizes because she saw him downstairs in the bar. And anyhow, this is the beginning of a absolutely wonderful relationship uh, in which they meet up to have sex continuously. And uh, she's still dating Raymond and decides, I have to marry Raymond, otherwise I'm going to turn into a real slut. And as a wedding present, Daniel gives Rebecca a motorcycle. And she, it is like a it's pretty sexy motorcycle, to be fair. And uh, yeah, and so we, we watch her travel through multiple countries to meet up with Daniel as she's leaving Raymond, her husband. And we get to hear her thoughts, her insipid thoughts the entire time. (laughs) I, this is the, one of the worst movies that I've ever seen, period. Um, Besides the fact that it's just like straight up offensive uh, in, in everything about it. And like, you know, that this is. No woman wants a man who respects her. Yes. I mean, that's what I learned from this. (laughs) And that's, and that's the kind of things that she thinks. I mean, like this is based on some short story that some French guy wrote. And it's very clear that a, (laughs) that that a French guy wrote this, uh, in the sixties, because it is just like, well, what could women possibly think? You know, like she literally says like, you know, well, Daniel treats me like a slave and, 
you know, he says that there's not going to be marriage and, you know, and, and that's what I want. You know, he, he is like everything that I need. And, um, it, it's just the, the thoughts behind this entire film are absolutely ridiculously, wildly, wildly offensive. And then even worse is that they take Alain Delon and they have him star as a bespeckled motorcycle riding professor of free love. <laughs> and they ruin that for me. They ruin it. There's even a scene in this movie, which I will 100% put on our website, where he is totally naked, lying down, and she's naked, and she's lying in his legs. And there is a bouquet of roses that is placed like, like which Austin Powers ripped off completely. It's placed completely covering his dick. So it looks like his full naked body with a rose bouquet as his dick. And it's the best shot I've ever seen in all of cinema. And uh, this, so this could have been the best movie. And yet it's a movie about why women love to be raped. And, uh, you know, if you want to make women happy, you're, you're a pussy. And uh, also that they're too stupid to not masturbate on their motorcycles at 100 miles an hour on a busy highway. Because, uh, you know, they're, they're closing their eyes and fantasizing about a man who calls them silly bitches. It's it's insane. And grinning like an idiot, Marion Faithful spends a lot of this movie on her motorcycle grinning like an idiot. Like she just looks, She looks like a dog with its I, head out of the window, <laughs> snapping at the air, you know, with the tongue like out of her mouth. Like she just looks like a she looks like a moron. And I like Marianne Faithful so much. <laughs> I do too, but we've seen three movies with her for this show so far, and they're all terrible movies. I'll never forget what's his name and uh, and uh, Made in USA, the Godard film, and yeah, I don't, I, I'm, I'm losing faith in Faithful. <laughs> it's just such a, it, it, this is such an awful, awful film, and I don't know what, like nothing, it, it needs to be thrown out completely and re. I think if a woman rewrote this, it would actually be a little bit interesting. There's a credit that says thought sequences dialogue by Julian Freeman. So they got a woman in to like write her insipid thoughts as she's riding her motorcycle. So there is like somebody thought it would be good a good idea to have a female perspective in here somewhere since it's a movie about this woman who can't figure out what she wants for herself. Well, you know, I will say that I, there is a there's a lines of dialogue in this that to me really clues you into what it was like to be a woman in the 60s and not be as smart as my Zeterling. <laughs> because, um, you know, there there's a touch upon something that could have been interesting. And there's, uh, you know, basically this idea that she continually comes back to the idea that she doesn't have an identity. She even says in a line of dialogue that I wrote down here that she doesn't want Raymond because quote, he never gives me any identity. He never says I'm pretty, you know? And, and this is something that she comes back to over and over again, this idea that Daniel gives her an identity by restricting her. Whereas Raymond says, just do what you want, but she doesn't know what she wants and she's not smart enough and she's not enlightened enough to realize that it's, it's really up to her. <laughs> She expects this is like part of her definition of what a man should be doing and why you would get married. And, you know, the sort of irony of it is that Delon is this guy who doesn't believe in marriage because he was hurt once, which we never learn anything about. But it's so it's so cliche and so recognizable, too. I'm like, oh, I've dated this moron before. <laughs> it's like he got <laughs> hurt once 
And now he thinks, oh, like, you know, marriage is for idiots and I'll never love again. And he teaches this class on free love. You know, like this is his whole thing now. It's just like, like, you know, bang them and leave them and, and have your fun on the way out kind of guy. And, and so like, you know, this is who she is like going. So it's already this, it's never going to work out kind of relationship because he's too damaged and she doesn't have any idea who she is. And, you know, and she just, and so like, I think that that's, on on in itself a sort of intriguing quality about this is that like you do kind of understand how somebody could you know fantasize about rape in that sense but like that doesn't it doesn't make it correct and it certainly doesn't make it any less painful to watch when you're stuck spending an hour and a half with like the dumbest idiot you've ever met <laughs> this movie jack cardiff the director of this film is better known as a cinematographer he directed a good number of movies I, this may be the only one i've ever seen the long ships I, I don't know he's some some sort of well-known movies he directed but uh yeah as a cinematographer he did amazing stuff for pal and pressburg he shot uh black narcissus and the the red shoes which are two of the most you know beautiful studio bound movies ever shot so you'd think that this movie would have a lot more visual interest to it. Like he does some experimental things. There's this, you know, he does sort of a brackage, like, you know, negative on top of positive, like color tinting, weird sixties thing in a few spots. Like we sort of bounce into fantasy occasionally in this movie when it's not a flashback. Sometimes it's a fantasy, but, and there's, <laughs> there's an amazing clown fantasy at the beginning of, uh, a circus fantasy at the beginning of the film where it's got like these these scary clowns that show up and he like zooms in and out using just the you know the, the zoom lens to 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 zoom in and out on these scary clowns and it's everything there's so many bad ideas in this movie like not just on a like narrative level what there is of a narrative visually i mean i guess visually mary and faithful in black leather, naked under black leather, uh, on a motorcycle is uh, is all the lawn Vaughn. It's a, it's high couture. Okay, yeah. What do I know about that? They still exist. <laughs> French French couture designers. But yeah, I mean this. The U.S. title for this movie was "Naked Under Leather," and uh, and just seeing Marion Faithful on a on a motorcycle. The, the outfits rule in this, by the way. Her leather outfit is iconic, yeah. to be fair, with the ruby pole. Yeah, that the the belt is really is iconic. Yeah, you need you need more than that. At least I need more than Marion Faithful on a motorcycle in leather, <laughs> and that's really all you get from this movie. And and some uh, some almost naked Delon doesn't do a very good job of covering up her body. She manages to to show off a lot of flesh of course not why would they cover throughout. up her body <laughs> she gets naked and she gets full frontal nude in like the first five minutes of this movie so <laughs> yeah i mean this a movie about a woman riding around on a motorcycle observing things and just trying to understand wrestling with the meaning of life uh it could have been awesome it really could have like i i think there's something there there is something interesting here uh, but it just, unfortunately, she's just like the, a dumb bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give me Anne Margaret on a motorcycle any day. Yeah. And I'm not even being an ass when I say that she's a dumb bitch. She literally like spends half this movie calling herself, oh, you are a silly bitch. 
<laughs> I've married Raymond to stop becoming a tot. You know, you're like, shut up. Shut up. My black devil and Daniel's my red devil. I hate her. And of course, the worst part, I'm going to spoil this movie. The worst part is this ridiculous moralized ending. Yeah, I don't know why I was keeping that a secret. Like, to, to spoil this movie is spoiling nothing, even though it is a big shocking conclusion. Quote, unquote, shocking conclusion. She dies. She blows up. Yeah, because she's... <laughs> she, she drives into a truck. Yeah, because she's too busy masturbating <laughs> uh, on her bike at 100 miles an hour. And then, yeah, like, she just, like, flies off the damn thing. And also, like, the voice in her head is, of course, Daniel all the time when he's like, you dumb bitch, like, stop riding like that. You're going to crash. Oh, you're right, Daniel. You're right. I was quite right, you know. And then, and then, of course, you know, she she dies before she gets to him because you know all all women must go to Satan if they're uh, if they're too lustful or whatever the fuck. Who cares? <laughs> Actually, there are. I'll, I'll give Jack Cardiff some some credit for some visual moments in this movie at the Earth end that windshield? after she. That's well, a yeah. good one. <laughs> that's that stunt is good, but I, I'm talking about after that where. It shows all of these these locations. A lot of this movie, we see her driving past, back and forth through the same locations, and um, and at the end of the movie, Cardiff shows us these same like really memorable locations again without her driving through. And I feel like in a better movie, I mean, like in a better movie, it's look please. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly, and uh, or you know before sunrise, but. Uh, he he does a good job with that. Like it almost it almost has some emotional impact, except you don't care about her or anybody in the movie. No, at you're all. happy she's so dead. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, we've got uh, "I Love You, Alice B. Toklas." I love you, Alice B. Toklas. And so does her. I saw this movie in high school once, and I I have never been able to forget Peter Sellers' character name in this movie because the over and over and over the the theme music is "I love you, Alice B. Toklas, and so does Harold Fine." <laughs> so yeah, I've <laughs> um, my my choice for a kill pick is "I love you, Alice B. Toklas," directed by Hi Aberback. Uh, who I don't really know anything about, based on a script co-written by Paul Mazursky, and I think you're you're a bit of a Mazursky fan. I don't know. I'm a I mean, big Mazursky head. Yeah, I I've seen uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice and and not much else. I don't I don't have much use for him. You never seen Next Stop Greenwich Village? No. Oh, you you got to see that one. I think you'll like it. So you can probably speak to how this this you know, plays into his filmography. But, you know, basically we've got this uptight lawyer played by Peter Sellers, uh, Harold Fine, and he um, he's he's dating his secretary, sleeping with her, and they're engaged to be married. And um, she's, you, you get the sense right away that he's really not, he's sort of just, 
he's going to marry her because he knows that's the right thing to do and his he his mother he knows that his mother wants wants him to marry a nice jewish girl and uh he wants something else but he's just going he's he's doing what his mother wants what society wants being you know being the good the good upstanding 60s man that he's supposed to be um but uh his uh his mother tells him that uh an old friend of the family has just died so he so Harold needs to go get his brother Herbie, uh, who is a uh, a hippie, like the the such a hippie caricature. Oh, and there's also um, another little plot point is that uh, Harold has uh, has had a a car wreck because he's so uptight. He sort of ends up um, you know busting his car because somebody has has blocked him in the driveway. But uh, so he, the the loner car that he gets is this like this painted up hippie car it's got flowers and you know it's a painted all sorts of colors it's just a you know smoky a, a, a hippie car that that smokes a lot the, the exhaust smokes so just the um you know this the straight laced guy driving around town s- somewhere on the west coast i don't know i guess it's probably it's probably in the los angeles area um and he's um it s- starts to affect his his outlook on life a little bit driving this car and he picks up his brother who's got this friend who he sleeps with um nancy um played by lee taylor young and uh she's you know sort of the perfect hippie girl she's very likable um very pretty and harold starts to realize oh his fiance joyce is uh who's already a little skeptical about is starting to look worse and worse in comparison to this free-spirited Nancy and and I think all of this this opening stuff it's it's even it's more than than just the first it lasts for more than half the film is this you know uptight guy who's realizing that he needs to break out a little bit that this this path that has been laid out for him is not what he's really interested in and the sort of the turning point is where the title of this this film comes in um I love you Alice B Toklas is um Alice B. Toklas, the uh, the girlfriend of Gertrude Stein, created this cookbook where she invented cannabis brownies. So Nancy ends up spending the night at at Harold's place because she's got no place else to stay, and and he he you know he wants to help her out, and uh, he's also very attracted to her. And as a thank you, she leaves him a batch of pot brownies, so he doesn't know that that they're pot brownies, and he serves them to his mother and some of their old friends, and so you've got some. You know, a bunch of old people and Peter Sellers tripping on, uh, Pot. on <laughs> marijuana. <laughs> and that's when the movie takes a real nosedive. And I forgot that it took so long for, for this movie to turn into a, a piece of crap. But uh, yeah, so this, so Peter Sellers grows his hair out and, and joins a, a hippie commune. And uh, all because of this one experience with pot brownies. And uh, so... The rest of the movie is just this satire, instead of a satire on uh, you know modern life and uh, and these these paths that we lay out for ourselves that uh, that are too rigid, which is actually pretty good. We get this satire on on the freedom of of hippies and and their you know how ridiculous they are and it's yeah, and they're such caricatures and it's so not funny and. Uh, yeah, any any time Peter Sellers grows his hair out, you know you're in for trouble. This this and uh what's new pussycat? Like 
two two worst things Peter Sellers, who's a hero of mine, has ever done. I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't seen this one, and I've been avoiding it because specifically of the reasons that you mentioned is that it looked like it was going to be god-awful. I just I kept putting it off and putting it off uh, for decades, and then I finally watched it, and I was like, oh, this isn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and maybe it has to do just with that... Um, my expectations were so, so low that when it wasn't that bad, it was suddenly like, you know, great. <laughs> I wouldn't call it great, but I, just that, uh, you know, I, I think that part of it, and it may be also the fact that I've watched enough Mazursky movies is that like his, his voice came through pretty clearly in this to me. And I kind of know his deal and his deal isn't, his deal is cynicism, but without, um, hatred and i think that that's kind of the what i liked about this is that it's never fully patronizing it's like a little bit i think it's actually pretty gentle in its cynicism even though it's playing with caricatures all around like you know the, the parents are very i think they're about as over the top as the hippies are but you know this is really a movie about like someone like hating the status quo but being smart enough to know that the hippie lifestyle is about as as full of shit and mm -hmm. so, like, I kind of like, I mean, it's just like, it, you know, it, and then you just sort of stuck, you know, and it's sort of this, uh, it just, re it reminds me of, like, what makes Woody Allen, when Woody Allen's at his best, it's like that, like, he's a little less neurotic than Woody Allen, but it's just a lot of this, you know, anxiety looping, and, like, you know, you're, when you're, you know, when you're the salary man, you, you have this problem, and when you're the hippie, you have this problem kind of thing, and, and you know, you're never going to be satisfied, is really what it comes down to. And like chasing the high of something that is literally a high, you know, like the that first taste of pot brownie is never going to be it's never going to get any better. <laughs> right. This is one of those movies that uh, really shaped what I thought the 60s were. I, I think that's uh, it's why it took me so long to, to come back around to the 60s is uh, because I thought I was going to be watching <laughs> More movies shit like this. nothing like I love you, <laughs> Alice B. Toklas. Yeah, um, but uh, but yeah, what I I really I I was the first half of this movie the the sort of the comic caricature tone it takes in the first half is is fairly sharp. Like I I believe in this like exaggerated world that uh, that Harold Fine lives in, where his you know this his clients are this huge huge family of Latin American immigrants who have gotten in this car wreck and and uh, and they they sort of file into this office and there's about a dozen of them that were all packed into this one car. And it's, you know, clearly a, a racist joke that hasn't aged very well, but they're, you know, this, this family is really lovable and they, they of course show up at the end and, and because every sixties movie has to end with every single character in the movie showing up in this like blowout party. That's never funny at all. Like the, the exaggerated world presented in the first half felt real. Like it felt like, you know, Mazursky or whoever we have to thank for this movie ha really had like something to say like this, you know, really understood what it's like to, to struggle in, you know, doing something that you don't like and knowing that there's something else out there, but you don't know what it is. And you were just this you know, disenchantment with the, with the modern world. And I, I, that stuff played surprisingly well, but none of the hippie stuff resembled any kind of, reality that 
that anyone's ever experienced. I mean, I'm sure there you there were actual hippies who may have approached some of the ridiculousness of of the hippies in this mo- movie, but it just becomes such a an unbelievable farce in the second half that that has no connection to reality and mainly is just not funny at all. Like it's it's trying to like rub your nose in all this unconventionality this these people who who uh you know do exactly what the opposite the opposite of what you're supposed to do in society like there's this hilarious scene where uh nancy she works in this dress shop and uh and some you know this 60s man comes in and says oh i'm looking for a dress and and there's you know and they had they have such a laugh over this this guy who just wants to be in a dress and like it's such a it's uptight the film's uptight you know it's still a 60s man film at heart for sure yeah it's uh, it gets sexist and the uptightness is believable the 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 free loving is totally unbelievable the thing i i liked about the hippies is that i think that the the main complaint seemed to be that they just do not have any (laughs) self-awareness and that was kind of what i thought worked because I'm I'm with you. Like I actually thought the house looks really awesome when they finally go full hippie. There was some good art direction in this movie. That like looks really really fun and funky and like you know memorable. It may well, I guess like it made me think of in college. I had a dorm mate at one point who would call herself a communist, but all that meant was that if I was eating candy, she expected me to give her some. <laughs> you know what i mean like it was that like it would be like if if i and and i'm i feel like i'm a generous person it wasn't a matter of me like being you know never trying to interact like i was not in i was interacting with her but she would like you know impose this like these are my morals and her morals were that like you know you know give me free shit and and that and i believe me i have much more sympathy to communism i'm not trying to make like a a statement about communism it's a statement about her (laughs) Um, you know, and, and her total misreading of it, of, you know, what communism was to be something that was self-serving. And I think that that's what a lot of the hippieism is at its worst. It's this idea of like, oh, yeah, it's free love house. And it's like, well, it's actually my house, <laughs> you know, and so it's like his inability to let go of, you know, his own clear ties to the stuff that he does like, even though, he, you know, it's like you basically that you can't have. The good and, you know, you have to take the good and the bad is what it comes down to. Facts of life situation. <laughs> and yeah, you know, and I so, mean, so I, I like that aspect of it, but I'm also like giving it way more um, sympathy because I, I recognize so much of Mazursky's voice in it. And I think that but I also will say that at his worst, he is a 60s man at heart. You know, and there's quite a bit of stuff like his, they has a whole sequence in this about girl watching, which is something that he ends up reusing again, even worse in his movie, Alex in Wonderland, which comes out in the seventies. But like, you know, there, there's a bit of this, um, you know, so I don't, you know, like you were saying with the, the, the guy who's, who is in drag and, and like, you know, they're sitting there giggling their asses off over this as if this is the funniest thing and it's obnoxious. And like, you know, that's sort of the, it's like a, there's light racist humor about, you know, the hippies dressing up as Native Americans and, uh, you know, and that, and that, you know, the Latino family and, and all these things. And it, it's very, and even I think in poking a lot of fun at Judaism for sure. 
Um, you know, and it's sort of good natured for the, like, I, you know, for what it is, I'm not, I'm not excusing it, but it is what it is. And, but, you know, I think that the, there's a core emotional thing that I find very relatable with Mazursky. And so like, I can sort of forgive some of his, his like indulgences towards like the, the stupidness because like I, at, at its heart, it feels kind of real. Hmm. I don't deny that there is this uh, this all-accepting nature to this film. Like, nobody is really painted villainously. You never like Joyce at all, but, y you know, it, it, it does sort of have love for all of its characters to a certain degree. I, I can accept that. Um, but really, but... it's just like the, the best part about this is Peter Sellers. He's, he's great in this. He's great. Well, yeah, he's great until he's not great. I don't know. I, I kind of I got a kick out of him throughout. Like I, I was really impressed with him because, again, you know, he's someone who talk about someone who, uh, you know, is has has no internal sense of self. Like when he has good material, he really lights up. And like, I feel like he was really on the ball in this movie in a way that I didn't expect him to be with his like, I thought his accent was pretty spot on uh in his american jewish accent it's just like claire quilty and uh lolita though his his normal guy voice yeah. in, in one of the greatest <laughs> scenes in in any movie ever and he's doing that same voice and i i so i appreciate it for that reason. i like just but... all of the little micro expressions or like when he's being you know some some fake ass guru takes him on a beach and he spends the whole thing like walking on shells and like trying trying to you know be mindful and thoughtful as this guy like espouses whatever bullshit to him and he's too busy like you know being like ah, you know on oh, my foot <laughs> like stuff like that like it was just like this sort of tiny little details of peter sellers i thought were just like really really delightful in in like what isn't that great of a script for sure yeah he he brings a lot more to the movie than than is in the script. Like that scene where where uh, Nancy's sleeping over, you know, he's got this beautiful hippie chick sleeping in his uh, in his living room and she's, you know, he, he clearly wants them to not be sleeping in separate rooms, but he's so uptight that he doesn't know what to do. And he plays that perfectly. You know, he pulls the blanket up over her, her leg where he sees the, the butterfly tattoo. Like he, anything that's good about this movie is Peter Sellers, but I also think that a lot of the really bad stuff in it is also Peter Sellers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, here's the thing, even though I'm sort of like thinking about this in a sunny way, um, I didn't laugh once. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think it was funny. Uh, I think I did. I think I did in the first. I got a kick out of it. I enjoyed weird. it. I kind of like it has a good sort of meta ending that I won't spoil in the way that I I spoiled with the other ones, but you know, there's this sort of like, is this reality or is it not reality kind of ending, which I thought was, was clever. It kind of worked. Yeah. Yeah. Got him out okay. of it. Okay. And the message at the end was, was fine. It, it had a, had a solid philosophical point at the end, but uh, yeah, I was just relieved when this did turn into an awful movie because I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of tired of picking kill movies that I actually end up liking once I see them again. And uh, and to have that not happen again this week was was nice. <laughs> so glad I was miserable. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was it. You know, so interestingly, I think it's kind of cool, even though two of the films that we chose, not even 
so much um, on purpose, but we chose two films that didn't actually get released in 68. So we can't, even though we, I, I love drawing some big conclusion about the state of cinema in the year, even though we know that that's totally anecdotal because we're handpicking movies that we, that have something in common, which is us. Um, I thought it was really neat that I think all of these films have to do with the, with deconstructing the self and peering behind the surface. Yeah. And I think that that actually is very reflective of 68 yeah busting through the illusion of of what uh of what society expects from us and what we think we are and and sort of seeing seeing through that to to the reality it's definitely even in the worst of these that's the that's the exact point that it's trying to make. exactly which is crazy because i again mm -hmm. like i we we choose these i at least when i choose this i'm always thinking the only thing i try to keep in mind is some is trying not to choose all american movies or english movies which is kind of like my default <laughs> but like that's it like i'm not trying to like specifically choose things based on a theme usually and and that just so happened to be how it how it came out and i think that's really cool and i think that it is when you were saying at the beginning that this like this was a an episode that felt very modern i think that that's that's kind of what we were feeling yeah I, i'm I mean and to give a little peek behind the curtain of our selection process the we don't do we don't rule anything out except when we think that maybe we're going to use a film in another episode that we've planned on in the future. So, you know, there, there I think there must be some element of, of that, like excluding things because we know we're going to use them later. It makes us end up, you know, focusing on a certain kind of movie um, because they're, you know, they're things that must appeal to us, even though they don't have some kind of, you know, auteur connection or some connection to a specific movement or, or or something like they're not these are movies that we don't have necessarily any other associations with other than we want to see them and i think that that our you know our tastes are similar enough that we always end up in you know having having movies that always wind up in some kind of somewhat the same ballpark and then listen to us right now deconstructing our choices for why we did this deconstructive films well, we've done nine of these now. I think it, it's it's definitely time to get meta. Sixty eight is the is the time to get meta about uh, about what we're doing with this podcast. If we're not just tripping balls for sixty nine, I don't know. <laughs> then we're really screwing up. Yeah, but you know, I'm curious. I sixty nine is one of my least favorite. It's definitely my least favorite year of the sixties. Uh, one of my least favorite years in cinema. So I, I wonder what's going to happen five episodes from now and we do that episode yeah i feel like 69 is either gonna like tear us apart completely and then we'll never do kiss mary kill ever again or it's gonna like we're gonna have some kind of revelation and it's gonna bring us together <laughs> <laughs> yeah or just a brilliant idea for the next trip through the decade year by year yeah You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. 
Thanks for tuning in.